Amen. What a great reminder, the powerful name of Jesus that nothing can stand against. Church, we can come in and we don't always have our best, do we? Uh, But we know that we come to worship the name of Jesus that nothing can stand against. That's a a beautiful reminder for our time today. Uh, Good morning, church. Uh, It is great to see you guys, as I said earlier. Um, My name is Tim. If you're just joining us, I'm one of the pastors here. And we've been spending uh, some time in the Gospel of Luke. And we've been looking specifically at prayer and Jesus' model of prayer, Jesus enabling us to prayer. And today we're going to come to the, near the end of the gospel. You can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 22, um, where we're going to be looking at Jesus' prayer in the garden. Jesus, as we talked about in previous weeks, was a man of prayer throughout his entire life. Um, he prayed in the best of times. He prayed at regular rhythms. And in these pivotal moments of his life, his suffering, his trial, his crucifixion on the cross, we see Jesus praying. And at this pivotal moment, all four Gospels are careful to show us Jesus praying. And in the Gospel of John, we get the high priestly prayer, an entire chapter of Jesus praying for his disciples, praying for us. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see Jesus in the garden praying before he goes to his arrest and trial. Luke 22, the, the bulk of the chapter talks about this last night, the Thursday night before Easter, the night of his arrest. And it begins by talking about his last meal with his disciples, his last chance to teach them and instruct, instruct them. And it ends with his arrest and his trial and his sentencing and the final journey towards the cross. But here in the middle, Jesus and his followers leave Jerusalem and they go out to a place where Jesus commonly went. Um, a hill called the Mount of Olives, and a garden called Gethsemane. This was a special place for Jesus and his disciples. And it's there that Jesus experiences the darkest night of his life. He knows what's coming. He's been telling his disciples for chapters and chapters, it is necessary that I must suffer. He knows that there is a trial. There are beatings, there's whippings, and a slow and gruesome death is awaiting him. He knows this, and, and worse, he knows that he will bear the sin of of mankind and the wrath of God in in only hours. And so he is suffering bitter anxiety and sorrow. And in the garden, Jesus prays that he would endure suffering, that he would hold um, faithful to God's will. And he shows us a way that we can pray in our worst moments, in our deepest pain and sorrow. And he shows us that prayer sustains us through the darkest nights. Uh, Christians throughout uh, history have often talked about something that we call the dark night of the soul. This is us at our lowest moment, us when there seems to be no hope, there seems to be no daylight. Sometimes uh, figuratively, when we seem to be without hope and we're in a problem and we're suffering, it feels like no one understands, no one sees us. And sometimes, very literally, you may have experienced like me nights that everything just seems as bad as it can be. And it seems like that night will stretch onward with no end and nothing good can come with the new day. This is the dark night of the soul. Nights when we are faced with loneliness, depression, death, sorrow, and worry. And this, in this dark moment, Jesus prays. This passage also shows us a really unique, a really special look into Jesus that we don't see hardly anywhere else in the Gospels. Everywhere else in the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels, Jesus is... Um, decisive. He is strong. He is unflappable. No matter what comes at him, Jesus just answers. He always has the right answer because he's God, right? That it, it should be expected. But here we see Jesus at his most human. 
Jesus is afraid. He is sorrowful. He is racked with anxiety. He is anguished. We see him in his complete and full humanity. It's very relatable in a way. And we get this peek inside the mind and the heart of God. We see God the Son speaking with God the Father through the Spirit. This peek into the Trinity, the three persons of one God. And so, this prayer of Jesus the God-man, who is fully divine and fully human, we have to tread lightly here, don't we? Because we get a peek, but we don't get a full picture. We get this tiny little window into Jesus' heart and his mind in this dark moment. And we want to speak carefully here. But we also want to say that God gives us wisdom. God gives us instruction in this prayer of Jesus that we want to look at today. We want to see how prayer can sustain us in the darkest nights of our lives. So read with me in Luke chapter 22, uh, starting in verse 39. And Jesus came out and went, as it was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to this place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Church, would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you be with our time of study this morning. That you would help us to have wisdom as we um, look at the life and prayers of Jesus in this passage. Father, we pray that in this time, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your eyes. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's a couple elements that we're going to look at here in Jesus' prayer in the garden. I think we have to begin with Jesus' suffering. This is perhaps the biggest idea in this entire chapter, and it sort of comes to a head here. There are those who have said that perhaps the suffering of the cross reaches its height here in the garden, uh, where Jesus is truly suffering. As we mentioned briefly before, this passage really is, is highlighting the full humanity, uh, the humanness of Jesus. He's feeling anxiety, like many of us would feel. He's feeling pain and sorrow and anguish. Um, in Matthew's descriptions of these events, Jesus tells his disciples that my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. He's reached a sorrow and anxiety, a physical and emotional strain that could kill him, that is harmful for his health, that is, that is physically hurting him. Verse 44 shows us that he is sweating like great drops of blood. Now, this is a little unclear. We might understand this two ways. It might just be a heightened way of saying his extreme stress, the, the amount of perspiration that is dripping off of him as he's, as he's hurting in this moment. But others said that there is a real medical condition that this sounds like. It's called hematidrosis. I probably didn't say that right, but it's this condition of extreme physical and emotional discomfort to the point where the blood vessels near your sweat glands burst and blood really comes out of your pores, where you are literally sweating blood. The blood of the cross, the, the blood spilled for us, begins here in the garden as Jesus is experiencing the physical effects of such great a sorrow, of such great a suffering. Um, it's difficult to really 
describe. It's difficult to really put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus and all that he is facing here. Now, why is this? Why so great a sorrow? Why so great an anguish? And why is the Gospels, uh, why do they bring us into this suffering that Jesus is experiencing? Well, as we said, he knows what's ahead of him. He's told his disciples that he must suffer. He's, he knows the horrors of crucifixion. As a man growing up in the Roman world of that time, he saw crucifixions. He knew what it, was, um, what it was. He knew those who were nailed to a cross and hung there to die by the elements over days or to die of asphyxi- asphyxiation slowly. He knew this was bad. He knew what it looked like for Roman soldiers to whip a man within an inch of his life. He knows what's coming. And worse than that, he understands what he will experience for the sake of sinful humanity. He knows the weight of sin the seriousness of sin to God. And so he understands the full weight of mankind's sin, yours, mine, Adam's, people who have not been born yet, the weight of sin of billions of people will be poured onto him. And he will experience the wrath of God against that sin, the full effects of that evil and that rebellion against God. It will all be poured onto him and he will have to bear it for us. 1 John 2, 2 tells us that he is the propitiation, he is the sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the entire world. And this knowledge causes Jesus in his humanity to experience a fear of death and suffering. There's some things that we need to take note of here as we examine our own suffering, as we look to Jesus' example in prayer. First, that Jesus' suffering truly does show that he is truly human. We've said this before. It's worth saying over and over again, Jesus really experienced this. If you had gone through those same physical experiences, you would have felt the same things that Jesus felt. He didn't get a pass on this um, by his divinity. He took on the full and true measure of what he was going to go through. He experienced the same emotions, the same sensations, and even the same fears that we do, the same like visceral reactions. Jesus' suffering in the garden on the cross was real, and he felt it. And this left him close to death. He feels this torturous pain. And this is actually right and good. If Jesus didn't feel a fear of this fate, if Jesus Jesus didn't fear a fear of death, it wouldn't be real, would it? It wouldn't be um, genuine. It wouldn't be the right, sane response to such a fate that he's about to go through. So Jesus, in his sinlessness, in his perfect humanity, uh, experiences rightly an apprehension, a fear of what he's about to go through. So Jesus is truly taking our place for us as a real flesh and blood, emotions and heart and soul person. It also shows us that Jesus' suffering proves that he understands our suffering. Jesus' suffering proves that he understands our suffering. When we're going through difficulty, when we're going through trials, physical pain, emotional pain, loneliness, we know that Jesus understands us. When we are depressed, when we are anxious, Jesus understands this. When we are seemingly in inescapable situations, when we feel like those around us have left us alone, Jesus knows what this is like. He knows the dark night of the soul. And so when we are there, when we are in the darkness, it is encouraging to know that Jesus has gone there before us. That Jesus is not unable to sympathize with us in that point. In a real way, he is not unable to feel what we are feeling, to be there alongside us. Hebrews 4.15 describes this. It says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Many times when we're hurting, the thing we most want is someone to understand, someone to be there. And Jesus will. Jesus understands. This is why we can trust God in our suffering, in our loneliness, because he has not left us to suffer alone. He came to us. He came into our condition, and he came to save us, to remove us from this, to know that this suffering will end, that all of these things will be made new. And that's why we can be confident in our prayers, because we know that Jesus, who has suffered as we suffer, is perfectly able to understand us and perfectly able to plead our case before the Father in heaven. And like Jesus, when we face our darkest nights, knowing that he has understood us, we too must turn to God in prayer. That brings us to our second idea. Jesus' suffering and now Jesus' prayer. In the garden, Jesus comes to pray to his Father. And he models a lot of the things that we've talked about over the last com- uh, couple of weeks from the Gospel of Luke, from Luke chapter 11. He prays for provision. He prays for his needs. He prays with honesty, uh, with brutal honesty. He prays for God's will that the kingdom would come. He instructs his disciples to pray for deliverance from temptation, as we saw in Luke chapter 11. And he shows some of the practices that we talked about, too. He prays with repetition. Mark and Matthew particularly show us that Jesus goes three times and repeats this prayer deeply, personally, three separate times to God to ask um, what he must ask, to bring his needs to God. Um, Jesus prays with others. He brings his disciples there to be with him, to sit with him in prayer. But then he also goes off and prays in solitude. He prays with just him and the Father, stones throw away. He prays with repetition. He prays with persistence. But there are two main elements of Jesus' prayer that we want to dwell on today. It's going to help us examine prayer in the dark night of the soul. And so first, we see that Jesus prays for strength to endure suffering. Jesus prays for strength. When Jesus faced the worst parts of his life, when he's nearly overcome, he always ran toward the Father and not away from him. This is always the the thing that we face, right? When we're going through something, which direction will we run? Will we run to God, our Father, or will we run away from him? Will our suffering, will our difficulty, will our dark night of the soul be our excuse for leaving God behind, for turning away from him? Or will it be what pushes us closer to him? to run to his arms, to run to his provision and his protection? Do we turn to the Father or do we turn away from him? There's so much we can learn here in this short, simple prayer. It's only a few words. It's only one sentence or two sentences here. So we're going to look at these pieces. We're going to see how Jesus prays and what we can learn from it. First, Jesus prays, Father. He speaks of the relationship that he has with his heavenly Father, and he speaks of the character that God has as Father. We're reminded that Jesus is eternally the Son. The Father is eternally the Father. This isn't new when Jesus became human, that they are forever and always the Father and the Son. And they have this close, inseparable relationship. They are as close here in the garden as they were before the creation of the universe. God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are inseparable. They cannot be divided. They cannot be pushed apart. Jesus is close in his relationship with the Father. And he experiences the love that the Father has for him. In Luke 3, the Father proclaims for all to hear that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. His love, his fatherly love and protection and provision for his son is the love that every father-son relationship is modeled after. We don't look at father-son relationships in human terms to understand God. God is the model that we are built out of. 
He is the archetype, the prototype of fatherly, perfect love and provision and care for his son. And this is present here. Jesus is drawing on the goodness of the father as a father, one who cares for him, one who will protect him, one who will provide for him, one who will love him unconditionally, because this is the father's nature to care, to love, and to protect. Now, of course, Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father. Jesus is the Son of God in a way that none of us are. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus tells us that in him we have been adopted into sonship, into into being children of God. That we too can be children who address God as Father. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. When our fears are going to overwhelm us, when our sorrows are going to sink us and our, and our depression is going to eat us alive, we are not trapped in this spirit of fear. We have this spirit of adoption, of sonship. We can cry out truly, Father, who loves me, who protects me, help me in my suffering. We can run to the perfect Father whose perfect love and perfect provision will come to his children who are in Christ. Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing. Jesus' prayer is to seek first the Father's will. There's never any question about his ability. You understand? He doesn't say, Father, if you are able, Father, if you can help me here. He says, no, if you are willing. He, he speaks to his Father who is the unlimitedly powerful God, one who is the all-powerful, the almighty. There is nothing that God cannot do. And Jesus knows this. In his divinity, Jesus is this all-powerful God. He knows the full power of God. And so his prayer is never a doubt in what God can do. It's never a doubt in what God will be able to overcome the circumstances that he's facing. No, his prayer shows us there's a a difference in the ability to do something and whether or not that thing is good to do and good to be done. God can always deliver us. God can always help us. But what is good for us? What is good for God to do in our suffering? What is good for God to do in our pain? God will never do what is improper for God to do. God will never allow evil to—God will never do evil, and he will never cease to do good. And this is what Jesus knows when he's praying. If you are willing, we are not questioning God's desire, not his love for us. We're not questioning God's ability to help us. We are merely seeking to know what is good and right. If it is your will, Father. If this is what is in your good and perfect plan. It's trusting absolutely in his wisdom, in his goodness, in his love. No matter what happens, what God wills to happen is what we want to happen. God will not take us to a place that is not for our good and for his good purposes. He prays, Father, if you are willing. And then he comes to his plea. He comes to his request. Remove this cup from me. Jesus is asking, Father, is there a different way forward? Is there something else than what I am going to go through? Is there another way? And this is really really relatable, isn't it? If we knew this kind of suffering was around the corner, we'd be on our knees praying, Father, can we do something else? Can it be something, anything other than this? Is there any other way at all? What is this cup that Jesus speaks of? What is the cup that he's asking can go away? 
This is a metaphor that comes from the Old Testament. It refers to the wrath, the anger against sin that God has against our crimes, against the evil that has corrupted his good creation. In the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, the cup is the just punishment and anger that God pours out upon the enemies of God, upon the wicked, upon those who attack his people, those who refuse to acknowledge his rule and his goodness. Psalm 78.5 speaks of this. It says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours it out from it, and all of the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. This is the just punishment and condemnation of sin. It's like this horrible brew, this awful mixture that the wicked must drink down to the fullness. They must fully experience the consequences, the weight, the crime of their sin, of rebellion against God and who, and who he is. Except this time, this awful mixture, the fullness of humanity's evil, the fullness of wickedness and, and darkness in our world, and all of the fierce anger of God against what destroys what is good— Instead of being poured out on human beings like, frankly, you and me, Jesus is pouring it onto himself. Jesus is going to drink it in its fullness. And he knows what an awful drink, what an awful mixture it will be. But he takes it onto himself. And Jesus asks, is there another way? Not because he doesn't love us or love the world, but because he knows how awful this will be. He knows the full weight of it. And in his humanity, he desires to avoid it. Now we should pause here for a moment to say, doesn't this speak to the seriousness of sin? If there was another way, Jesus is pleading, if there's another way, Father, will you give it to me? If there is any other solution for the sin of humanity, if there's any other solution to the brokenness and suffering that we experience in this world, I'll take it. Let's do it right now. And God, in his goodness, in his wisdom, in his perfection, answers and says, no, that there is no other way. That this is a crime, this is a problem that is so pervasive, that is so deep, that is so wide, that there is no other solution. That should make us pause every time we want to downplay the seriousness of sin. Anytime we want to downplay the brokenness in our world, the darkness that we experience, there was no other way but that God's beloved Son should take that wickedness, that evil, that darkness upon himself. How great the love of God that he took this upon himself instead of pouring it onto us. As we said in his suffering, in the dark night in the garden, when Jesus prays to his good, all-powerful Father, God does answer him, and God says, no. Now, he does not leave him alone in that, does he? It tells us in verse 43 that God strengthened Jesus, that he sent him an angel who would build him up, who would strengthen him and give him the, the strength to endure, to continue in prayer. It says he went all the more fervently into prayer, um, praying, drawing closer to his father with the strength that God provides him. God does not leave him. The father does not abandon him. He does not send him. He does not leave him without help. He, he strengthens him. He guides him. He is with him through this process. But the father cannot remove the cup. The Father cannot remove the plan. The answer to his prayer ultimately is the arrest and the betrayal and the trial and the death on a cross. Not because the Father does not love the Son, but because it is the good will of God that the Son should die to bring many sons to glory so that he might save the lost, so that he might forgive sins and bring eternal life. God answers prayers in our darkest night. 
We've talked about this before. There is never a prayer that God does not hear. There is never a prayer that we can give that God will not answer. But he will not always answer in the way that we want. God will not always remove suffering from us. He will not always take away the thing that we wish to avoid. But God will always walk with us through that suffering. God will always provide the strength and the endurance to go through that suffering, to go through that dark night. And in Jesus, we have the promise that that night will end. That the evil of the world, the darkness of the world, has been brought to an end in Christ. God does not always give us what we ask for, but he always gives us what is good for us. He always carries out his good and perfect will. And this brings us to our second half of Jesus' prayer. The second lesson we must learn here is that Jesus prays in submission to the Father's will. Jesus prays in submission to the Father's will. He is bringing his request to God. He is speaking with honesty, with emotion, with transparency. But ultimately, his prayer is a means of bringing his will in alignment with the Father's, of submitting to the perfect and divine will of God, to say, not what I want, God, but what you want. Not what I want to have happen tomorrow, not the the path of least resistance, not the, the escape but what you have deemed is good and perfect, I will do. Not my will, but yours be done. This is the perfect of obe- obedience that Jesus models for us. It is his full humanity submitting to God and his purposes. No matter the shame, no matter the suffering, no matter the darkness, he will show ultimate trust in who God is. He will still listen and he will still follow. And this is the same prayer that he instructs his disciples when he tells them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He will do what the Father has laid out for him to do. Now Jesus is not forced onto this, right? We have to always run away from the idea that Jesus is forced. He is coerced into his death on the cross. He tells us that no one can take my life from me unless I lay it down. If Jesus didn't go willingly to the cross, then it would not work. We would not be saved. He gladly and willingly follows God's will, despite the suffering, despite the the pain. Look at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. This is a beautiful passage. This reads for us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was in on the plan, wasn't he? And Jesus was looking at the joy that was before him. He was looking at the joy of following the good and perfect divine plan that the Father laid out for him. He is looking at the joy of what will be accomplished, of the defeat of death and sin and evil, of the reversal of the curse that we see at the beginning of time. And the joy of a time when he will bring his people to dwell with him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured this. Jesus went to the cross willingly. He submitted to the Father willingly and joyfully. And the good news that Hebrews tells us is we can do the same thing in our darkest times, in our deepest pain. It says that we have these witnesses around us. We have those who have walked before us, those who have suffered for Jesus' sake before us as examples for us. He calls us that we too should lay aside every burden, lay aside every sin that will hold us back, that clings to us. And we should run with endurance, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, 
keeping our eyes fixed on the one who has defeated death, who has suffered in our place for us. That we too can joyfully walk through whatever may come because we trust in the good plan of God. We trust in the the goodness of the gospel, that he has died in our place. There is nowhere we wouldn't follow God because he has given us everything. He has suffered everything for our sake. Some have speculated that the real battle of the cross was fought and won in Gethsemane with Jesus on his knees before the Father. It was here that Jesus received the strength and the resolve to face the cross without wavering. And when we see him through the rest of Luke, Jesus does not waver. Jesus goes clear-eyed to the cross, willingly, joyfully. We survive the dark nights of the soul and we submit joyfully to God when we allow prayer to bring us to the ultimate trust in who he is, the trust that can sustain us through anything. Jesus' suffering, Jesus' prayer. Lastly, we want to look at Jesus' disciples. The disciples are here with him. Uh, And like us many times, the disciples don't turn out that well in this story. We see the disciples also in a dark night. They are exhausted. It says they are exhausted from sorrow. They're burdened by the events. They're burdened by trying to understand what Jesus is telling them. Throughout this whole chapter, we see a picture of utter failure. Jesus gives them the last supper. He, uh, he gives them a picture of what is to come, the new covenant that they're going to experience after his death. And what do they do? They start arguing about who's going to be the greatest among them. Who's going to get it? Is it me? They completely miss it. Then Jesus speaks that one of them is going to betray him. He sees Judas, who's at the table with him, who knows he's going to cause his death. He's going to, he's going to sell him for money. And he looks at Peter, and he sees one who's going to deny him, not once, not twice, but three different times when the going gets tough. And he looks at the other ten and sees those who will head for the hills when he's arrested. Jesus knows their weakness. He knows the failure that's coming. And finally, when Jesus begins to speak about the mission that's going, they get so confused and lost that they start arguing about if they have enough swords to go around when they're going to fight the war, right? Do we have enough weapons to fight this battle that's coming? They just completely miss it. And in the garden, in direct contrast to Jesus, as he is praying this this beautiful prayer of, of submission to his Father's will, they are falling asleep. They're so eager to fight with the, the war with human weapons like swords that they neglect the far more important weapon of prayer, of coming to God, of being united in him with his will. Jesus brings them to pray in his moment of suffering. He instructs them twice in verse 40 and 46, pray that you may not enter into temptation. The temptation to fall asleep when they should be watching against sin. The temptation to run when Jesus is being attacked. The temptation to deny Jesus rather than face any suffering. Twice he tells them this. Uh, Matthew and Mark describe this in even greater detail. Jesus goes to pray and he comes back and they're asleep. He wakes them up and tells them to pray. And he goes back and he comes back a second time and they're asleep again. One more time he goes back and he comes again and they are asleep for a third time. They can't do it. They are unable to persist in prayer and keep from falling into temptation. And they remind us of another garden and another failure of mankind. In the first garden, in the garden of Eden, the first man and woman walked with God. They spoke with him. They knew him deeply. And when temptation came to them, they did not resist it, and they fell into it. They didn't trust in the promises and the provision of God. Instead, they trusted themselves, and they believed the lie. In the garden, they fell, and they failed, and they brought a curse upon the rest of mankind. And it's that curse 
that the second Adam, that Christ comes into the Garden of Gethsemane to bring away. Where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus succeeds. Where the disciples fail in the garden, Jesus succeeds. Like the disciples, like Adam, we fail, we fall, right? We're not going to be right all the time. In fact, many times we're going to fail in this. We're going to fail to persist against temptation. We're going to fail to turn to God in prayer in our darkest moments. We're going to experience the consequences, not just of a broken world, but of our mistakes, our sin, aren't we? And it's going to really hurt. But what gives us hope in the darkest times is not our own ability, right? It's not our own resolve. It's not how hard we can try to stay awake in the face of temptation. No, we have hope because of Jesus' victory. When Jesus submitted to the will of God, when he went to the cross and endured the shame, he opened a way for us that was impossible otherwise. He did what no one else could do. And in him, we have this curse removed. We have the blessing of God. Because of the victory of Jesus in the garden, disciples of Jesus receive grace. We are not condemned to failure. The disciples of Jesus experience the victory of Jesus because of his prayer in the garden. Prayer sustains us through the darkest nights, doesn't it? Through prayer, the Father strengthens Jesus to endure suffering, to submit to the Father's will, and to achieve victory that no one else could. And through Jesus, when we come in our desperation, in our weakness, in our suffering, when we come and we don't have our best, and honestly, we rarely do. And if we're really honest, our best is never enough. When we come to Jesus as we are in our weakness, as broken disciples, We find victory. We find endurance when we follow God's will, when we pray with Jesus. Jesus saves us in the dark night of the soul. Let's pray. Father, we are are thankful for this, this small window into what you endured for us. We're thankful, Lord, that you went through something that all of us would fail at. That you took on yourself all of our evil, all of our failures, all of our mistakes, and you took them away. Father, in you we have forgiveness. We have hope. So Lord, I pray that in our dark times, in our good times, we would run to you in prayer. We wouldn't run in our own strength. We wouldn't run in our own endurance or our wisdom or our goodness, but we would just come to you as we are, as our Father. And that we would lay down our will, we would lay down our desires and say, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. Father, may this be true of our lives. May it be true of our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.